Please turn again to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3. One of the things I love about our music at Christ the King is that it is so Christ-saturated, that there is so much Jesus in what we sing. And we're going to be talking a lot about Jesus this morning, though His name does not appear in the text. He will be, as I hope always is the case, the central theme of the text. Find ourselves this week in 1 Peter chapter 3. And today we'll be looking at 1 Peter 8 and most of verse 9. 1 Peter 8 and most of verse 9. I'll read those two verses for us and then we'll pray and ask God's blessing on our time. <clears throat> Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Let's pray. Father, as we come every week to your word, we admit that apart from your spirit moving in this place, to help me preach and to help your people see Christ and see the food that you've given them from your word. Apart from that, this is an unprofitable time. And so we need you now. We need you to open our eyes that we might see Christ, that we might behold him, that we might glory in him and be more and more transformed into his image. I pray that you would help me this morning to present Christ and you would help your people to in turn present their bodies as living sacrifices, which is their holy and acceptable act of worship today and every day. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, before we begin the text this morning, I'd like to give a brief warning about reading Scripture passages and trying to apply passages like this um, that talk primarily about our righteousness and our holiness. This morning we're going to look at a number of virtues, principally in verse 8, but also in verse 9. And these virtues should be typical of every Christian. And that in and of itself could be the most depressing thing that you'll hear this entire week. A list of virtues can, because of our fear and our anxiousness and our hopelessness, turn into a pseudo-vice list. Instead of the Word of God <clears throat> casting a vision, awakening our weakness, exposing our need, causing us to look to Christ and grow up in every way into Him who is the head, we're tempted to be depressed and give up before we even start. Beloved, we cannot do this. Uh, over the last couple of weeks, Tammy and I have bought a, a bunch of apple trees and I can't wait to get them in the ground. I know as the orchardist, and I looked that word up, it is actually a real word, that the first two to three years that the tree attempts to produce fruit, I will be removing it completely. Why waste the sap that's trying to produce the fruit, but the fruit won't be fit to eat? I want the trunk to grow stronger. I want the roots to go deeper. And that's what 
our great Father in heaven, the vine dresser himself, if I can mix metaphors, is doing with us. When we see lists like these, it ought to turn our eyes to Christ. We ought to seek his spirit who in us has the power to prune us into the very image of Jesus. The word of God says that, that the spirit of God will conform us to the image of Christ. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that this morning? You can. And that is why we can look at texts like this today and have hope. Believe God for more than just a bit more maturity than you have now. Let me say that again. I want you this morning as we go through this text to believe God for more than just a bit more maturity than you have now. He is able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think through his power in Christ Jesus that is at work in each of us. Believe him today, beloved, for Christ-likeness. Well, as we get into our text today, we're going to make a shift in Peter's argument or what he's been encouraging the saints in his day. We've been looking at specific kinds of excellent conduct, you know, that godly conduct that he talked about back in chapter 2. Christian citizens' submission and their good behavior towards the state, household slaves' submission and endurance, if necessary, towards their masters, wives' submission, quietness, and modesty towards their husbands, husbands' informed honor, towards their wives. And today, Peter is going to conclude his address by speaking to every member of the body of Christ. Now, your textual critic will jump in at this point and say, actually, I think Peter has an incomplete letter here. I think that there's more that he should have said. You see, what we miss in the word of God is the address to Christian statesmen. Where's the charge to slave masters? What about the children? The fathers weren't addressed and the husbands could probably use a little bit more talking to. Well, I would say in response, beloved, have you considered this week how blessed it is that you hold in your lap the entire counsel of God that is able to make you not only wise for salvation, but to aid you in growing up into Christ's likeness. We don't need to worry about what Peter may have left out because God revealed everything to us in his entire inspired word. But here in verse eight, Peter is going to tell the early church what they need by summing things up. He's going to sum up. And I would like a, a light bulb above everybody's head that just thought of the princess bride at that moment. And that's actually what he's saying. The Greek here is to de telos, which means now the summary, or in English, we would say, let me sum up. That's exactly what he's going to say to us. What you're about to hear is for everyone in the new covenant from the least to the greatest. And this address to the whole church is going to continue until chapter 5, verse 1, where he speaks directly to the overseers, a passage that Jeremy read in his charge to Daniel this morning. As we go through these qualities this morning, this unity of mind, this sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind, I want you to remember something that we've talked about in the last few weeks. And that is that your piety or your devotion to God is a gendered piety. It is a gendered piety. That is to say that though we are called to be tenderhearted, for example, and the principles of tenderheartedness are true for everyone in principle, but this will necessarily look different depending on your gender and 
that's okay. It is God's design that your piety, again, your devotion to Him, to follow, that your piety or devotion to Him follow your created nature, either male or female. Let me give you a brief example. The shortest verse in the whole Bible is John eleven thirty five, 35, which records the weeping of our Savior. Jesus wept. And as the perfect example of tenderheartedness, the Son of God in human form mourns with those who mourn. He sympathizes with frail humanity and Jesus did this as a man. He did this with an X and a Y chromosome. He is not in any way being effeminate in his compassion towards these women and the other mourners. He's not being soft. He's not being nice. And he's not trying to people please. He's not doing it because everybody's watching him and, oh, well, I need to cry now. I need to display some kind of emotion. The God who wrote death into his own story hates death. He hates it. And he really desired to see it overcome. And he would slay it, Jesus would, from John 11 all the way to the end of the book, when he overcame it in his death and resurrection. And I'm sure this goes without saying, but to underscore what we've been hitting on the last several weeks, brothers, you need one another. That means men need men to level up their piety. It's part of God's plan that men are part of a brotherhood. We were meant to sharpen one another while on mission together. That doesn't mean that you go on to a bowling night maybe once a week. Um, that's not going to cut it. The same goes for the ladies. Titus 2 records that the sisters have a responsibility the older sisters, the seasoned sisters, to disciple the younger women in their womanhood and being wives and mothers. So here in verse 8, we have five adjectives, and you can't see this in your English translation, but all five adjectives do not have a verb. He just lists five adjectives in a row. Now the summary, the end, this is how it would sound in English, all of one mind, sympathetic, brotherly love, tender-hearted, humble-minded. Just one right after the other. And so what your English translation has done is added an implied I me. That means to be. This is what you should be. You should act like this. This is the way that things ought to be in the household of faith. So let's take a look at each one of these in order in verse 8. We'll take them one at a time. First of all, like-minded or unity of mind. This is from a Greek word, homo, which means together, and frain, which means maybe mind, but it can also mean the waist or the midriff. So you should have the same mind or you should have the same waist or midriff. Now that may sound a little funny to us, but in the Greek world, the center of being was in the core of one's person. So often we're going to see in the Greek language descriptors of the core or the body of a person, and that could also be representative here. The definition, you're to be in harmony with one another. This is how the NASB 95 translates it. Be in harmony with one another. You be like-minded or of one mind or of unity of mind or single-minded or agree or you are in harmony or harmonious. This word is repeated a lot in the New Testament. I'll give you a couple of examples. In 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, this is unity regarding leadership. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be, here it is, united in the same mind and the same judgment. From 2 Corinthians chapter 13, speaking of church unity. Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another. You see it's used differently there, but the same idea. In Philippians chapter 2, like-mindedness for the sake of witness, for the sake of evangelism. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of homo frame, one mind. There's also interpersonal agreement in Philippians chapter 4. I urge Euodia and I encourage Syntyche to live in harmony or agree in the Lord. The last one I'll give you is from Romans 15. Unity for the sake of our worship. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you one more definition. This is from Webster's 1828 Dictionary. Unity of mind or like-mindedness is having a like disposition or purpose. A like disposition or purpose. I like that definition. It's going to help with where I want to go with application for this. I will say also, in addition, as many of you have said in this church, we have been very blessed with a supernatural like-mindedness, it seems, in our congregation. A lot of unity in our church as far as vision, what we see, and what we agree on. That, that begs a question, though. Does unity equal uniformity? Does unity equal uniformity? That's a resemblance to one another in all things. Well, biblically speaking, we would have to say no. We do not have to agree on every issue to have what Peter is describing here as like-mindedness. Jesus says that he who is not against you is for you, even if he's not part of your group, he's not in uniform with you, if I might say it that way. Paul says that each person should be individually fully convinced in their own mind about matters of secondary and tertiary importance, which they may differ on with people in the larger body of Christ. That's hardly a call for uniformity. I've mentioned a quote from Augustine of Hippo before. He says, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberality, and in all things charity. In essentials unity, in non-essentials liberality, and in all things charity or love. So to put what Augustine's saying here together with what Webster's saying, have a like disposition and purpose, there are many of you who have joined us since we planted, and it's been a while since we've mentioned our mission statement here at Christ the King. What do we think of when we think of unity of mind and purpose, when we think of having a like disposition with one another here in this congregation? I want to give you a summary of the reasons why we planted and the sense of the gravity that kind of pulls us all together 
in this unity of mind. There are four things that make up Christ the King's mission statement. You can write these down. First of all, we as a church are radically committed to the core truths of the scriptures. We are radically committed to the core or essential truths of the scriptures. Some examples, the authority and inerrancy of the Bible from cover to cover. We're committed to obedience to all of God's word. That's not just a reformational sola scriptura where I pick and choose maybe some of the Bible passages that I want, but expanded even more holistically to a totus scriptura. That's what the reformers would have been aiming for with this. Scripture alone and all of scripture. It's all ours and we're going to obey it all. We're also committed to the existence and identity of the one true divine being revealed in his Trinitarian personhood that the Bible speaks to. Lastly, just as examples, there are others. The revelation of Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of the Father, the only Savior and name among men given by which we must be saved. Now I could list others, but you get a sense of the essential commitment we have to the core truths of Scripture. And if you'd like others, Jeremy or Daniel, or I would be glad to discuss others with you that are important to us as a mission for our church. Secondly, as a church, we want to be liberally minded towards secondary matters. Liberally minded, which means agreeing, though we disagree, on secondary matters. Some of these would be means, mode, and candidates for baptism, the various covenant structures of Scripture, eschatological views, the definition and continuation or cessation of various spiritual gifts, church governance and polity, forms of worship, so on and so forth. This is not to say that everyone here, including the elders, do not have strong opinions on these issues. We all know that we do. But at this moment in the history of the world, wisdom seems to be demanding liberality on these secondary and tertiary matters for the sake of the growth of the body of Christ and our impact in the world. And I'll get to that a little bit more here in just a minute. Thirdly, we want to, here at Christ the King, create radical reformers for every area of society. Radical reformers in every area of society. This is not the time for the church to be on its heels. I'll say that again. This is not the time for the church to be on its heels. Is the darkness winning? If by digging its own grave you mean it's winning, yes it is. Are the transgenders making an impact in the world? Yes, they are. Are the homosexuals making an impact in the world? Yes, they are. Are the abortionists and the murderers of babies making an impact in the world? Yes, they are. And by so doing, they are digging their own grave. This cannot reproduce itself. It is self-defeating. All of these things that make up the zeitgeist today cannot win this fight. They're sawing off the limb that they are sitting on. The zeitgeist or the spirit of the age in our day is an infertile whore riddled with disease and it is near death. 
we are positioning ourselves for the reconstruction and reformation of the world when it does. That's one of the reasons that we decided to target the Clinton area. We want to be poised and ready to have an impact on the world when the reconstruction and reformation work needs to begin. As a community of believers, we're already building disciples, we're already growing together, and we're ready to go right back into the world and make an impact when it's time for this reconstruction work to begin. We are committed to training men and their families to lead out in this reformation in every area of life, whether home, church, work, government, or any other realm. So that was number three of our mission statement. Radically committed to the core truths of Scripture, liberally minded towards secondary matters, creating radical reformers for every area of society. And the last one is that Christ the King, we are committed to speaking boldly to the issues of our day. We are committed to boldly speaking to the issues, if necessary, against the issues that are opposed to Christ and His Lordship over this world. One of the things my kids and I love doing in our home is reading together. Parents, if you do not have a habit of reading on a regular basis out loud to your children, please start it. It is such a blessing. It will bless your home. And when we try and do this each night in the Jones home, we're doing this together as a family learning to read stories together learning to read narratives, learning to read plot lines. I've told you all in the past several weeks that we've been going through uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I've always loved stories, and by God's grace and my wife and my kids' testimony, I have a knack for picking out the plot lines and the characters. You know, things like there's going to be a fight in the next room, that kid's a traitor, the nerdy one's going to build a weapon that gives the good guys an upper hand, you know, stuff like that. Christians have got to get better at reading the story that they're in. We have got to get better at reading God's narrative. This is His story, His story. We've got to get better at reading His narrative in the moment of the world that we're in. In order to do this, I like to read to my kids so they learn to read through plot lines. But Christians, adults, we've got to learn to do this. And then when we see the issues of our day, we speak boldly from the Bible authoritatively to that issue. We tell the culture, this is what God's about. This is what we're standing on, and we're not going to budge. I would say that the church today, unfortunately, is really bad at this. I would say they're downright terrible. We should know where we are in God's story and the issues that He wants us to speak to. So, if you've been at Christ the King for a number of weeks, you'll have heard us talking a lot about the Imago Dei. That is, the image of God in humankind, the image of God and man. For the foreseeable future, since this is one of the primary issues that the enemy is targeting in our day, for the foreseeable future, we at Christ the King will not shut up about the holocaust of babies in our nation. We are not going to stop talking about God's design for gender. We're not going to start talking about the shame of sodomy and other sexual deviance or marriage being only between one man and one woman, or the nature and the roles of male and female in life and in marriage, so on and so forth. We at Christ the King don't require uniformity with us on every issue in order to be a covenant member. However, this, this mission statement is what this church is about. This mission statement is what this church is about. We are seeking to be like the men of Issachar, 
who understood the times to know what Israel should do. If you align with this vision and you are, or you are catching this vision, we would love for you to join with us. We see covenant membership as the best way to serve our members in contrast to loose associations. If you've been visiting for some time, we would ask you to come talk with one of the elders about being a covenant member. All of you have unity of mind. All of you have unity of mind. There's a big movement in the church today um, called the gospel-centered movement. You hear this a lot. We just want to be a gospel-centered church. We want to be a gospel-centered church. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to preach the gospel. Brothers and sisters, I can tell you, we don't have a lot else here to talk about than the gospel. However, the gospel transforms lives and speaks to all of our lives. It speaks to everything, not just the point of your salvation, but Jesus told his disciples to teach obedience to everything that he commanded. So we're to not just convert the nations, but disciple the nations. Is this a gospel-centered church? It absolutely is. All of the gospel for all of life. All of the gospel for all of life. Well, let's look at the next adjective. Your translation might say sympathetic or it might say compassionate. Peter charges the church to be sympathetic. The Greek, sympatheo. You can hear where we get our term. This is the only time in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, that this exact term or form of this Greek word is used. But you will get the idea of what Peter's trying to communicate in other places. I'll give you one example from Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Christians should recover a biblical view of sympathy. And I want to quickly give you three distinctives of biblical sympathy. First of all, it takes time. Biblical sympathy takes time. Everything in Western culture, beloved, is expedited. We live in the microwave generation, right? Our food system, our medicine, our industry, our entertainment, it's all as fast as it can be. I heard comedian Brian Regan talk about Western expedited culture and our impatience with it. He tells the story of how people sitting here with their cell phones playing around. They get mad when it takes more than a few seconds to load up a web page or something, right? And uh, he says things like, well, I mean, it's got to go to outer space and then come back, right? I mean, we're so impatient. We're so impatient. And then contrast that with my children and I recently watched a portion of an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, this isn't even 40 years old, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But if you go back and you watch one episode of that, the whole show is really slow. <laughs> Won't you be my neighbor? Okay, come on, buddy. Let's get on with it, right? <laughs> but it's so interesting. In just the span of 20 or so years, when that show was very popular to where we are today, everything, entertainment especially, it's rapid fire. It's as fast as it can be. And then when we see a command in Scripture where we're to be sympathetic, how do we recalibrate ourselves to a biblical standard of the time it takes to sympathize with someone? Being compassionate, mourning with others, processing grief and loss all require time. Biblical characters would often mourn for weeks or even months at a time with someone in order to sympathize. Now, 
I'm just giving you a contrast. I'm not saying that we have to go back to months of mourning for any or every particular issue. But in our expedited age, consider the principle that we may find ourselves better off if we take a little bit more time to grieve or sympathize with someone who is hurting. Does grief and hurt last longer for some or even indefinitely until they have time to grieve their loss? Sympathy takes time. I wonder how many people are still holding on to grief and loss because they've just never taken the time to process through that grief and have others do that alongside of them. Well, the second thing I want you to know about biblical sympathy is it comes with condolence. It comes with condolence. That's a suffering alongside of someone. We see this kind of compassion in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. This is difficult especially for men to do. As I mentioned last week, women are more emotive creatures and so understanding and grieving with someone is more like a second nature to them at least compared to the guys. Men are fixers. We want it to be made right. My dear wife, why are you crying again? It is about your lost mother. What can I do to fix it? I will buy you things and take you places and get your mind off of it. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Hear the word of the apostles, brothers. All should suffer together. Remember, Job's three friends did their best service to him when they sat with him in silence. Lastly, Sympathy takes time, condolence, and lastly, it takes truth. It takes truth. This is a biggie in our day when it comes to sympathizing with someone. Many of you are aware that several years ago, pastor and author Joe Rigney got into some trouble for highlighting the distinctions between two often conflated English words. Those are empathy and sympathy. In an article he wrote on the subject, and he wrote this article in the style of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, Rigney explains what he calls the sin of empathy. He says this, when humans are suffering, they tend to make two demands that are impossible to fulfill simultaneously. On the one hand, they want people to notice the depth of their pain and sorrow how deep they are in the pit, how unique and tragic are their circumstances, and at the same time, they don't want to be made to feel that they really need the assistance of others. In one breath they say, help me, can't you see I'm suffering? And in the next they say, how dare you act as though I needed you and your help. The sufferer doesn't want to be alone and demands not to be pitied or helped. Here, in Rigney's words, the distinction is made clear. Empathy is feeling or condolence, as I mentioned, devoid of the truth. Sympathy, biblical compassion, is feeling, it is a condolence, but it's tethered to the truth. It's always connected. It never lets go of that branch that you're holding on to to get this person out of the quicksand. Brothers and sisters, 
Empathy is a sin. We are not permitted biblically to empathize with someone. You might ask the question, but how will I know when to be silent and when to speak? I would encourage you, get into the Word of God and get to know your Savior, Jesus Christ. The ultimate act of sympathy or compassion was that God took on human form to be with us and suffer alongside us while simultaneously being the embodiment of truth. Always being tethered to truth. He knows personally our nature and our frame, and yet he still came to proclaim the whole counsel of God. The more you know your Savior, as he is revealed in both the Old and the New Testaments, God will give you insight into how to love those well who are suffering, how to sympathize with those who are suffering. Let's look at adjective, adjective number three. This would be brotherly love. Your translation might say loving the brothers. What kind of love is Peter talking about here? He's talking about a familial kind of love. The Greek is the word Philadelphia. Yes, that's where we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. New Testament writers call for this kind of affection in the church rather frequently. In Romans 12, love one another with brotherly affection. In 1 Thessalonians, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. In Hebrews 13, let brotherly love continue. In 2 Peter chapter 1, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What does this look like in our lives here at Christ the King? I want you to learn a Greek word today. The Greek word is alelon. Alelon. It means one another. It means one another. You likely know how often this phrase comes up in the New Testament. These are, in a manner of speaking, God's household rules for His children, the one another's of the New Testament. Just to give you an example, we're told in the New Testament to love one another 15 different times. We're told to serve one another four times. We're told to pray for one another. We're told to build one another up in nine different ways in the New Testament. Seven times we are told to be humble towards one another. We're told to forgive one another, not judge or speak against or complain to one another. We're to be honest with one another, to maintain unity with one another, to be at peace with one another, and to show affection towards one another. Let me ask you, brothers and sisters, do you love one another? Do you love one another? Does what I just read... All of those one another's typify your relationships in this church. Are you here for God's grace and God's forgiveness and to worship God, a God that you have never seen, all the while harboring enmity in your heart towards others of his adopted line who are just as much his sons and daughters as you are and also your brothers and sisters? Brethren, each week we go to a table to eat a family meal together. It is a shared family meal. 
It is a meal that symbolizes the unity of all the members of the body of Christ underneath the reign of King Jesus. Do you remember what happened to those who ate the meal without regard to their brothers and sisters, to one another? They got sick, and yes, some died. Why would God judge his own people in this way? Because judgment should always start in your own house. Brothers, please consider using your time between the service today and our communion together to make any wrongs in the family of God right. Readily repent to one another. God gives grace to the humble. And let me encourage you to study the one another passages of Scripture. I'm going to try and post a list of these in Slack at some point this week for you all to look over as part of your devotions. Let's look at adjective number four. Tender-hearted, the ESV says. Tender-hearted. This is another one of those core of the human being terms that Peter's going to use. It's from two Greek words, you, which means good, and splankton, which means your bowels. Good bowels. That's literally what Peter's saying. We put tender-hearted because it makes more sense to us in English. He's saying you got to have good bowels. That's sad news for a lot of us. When is the last time someone in this church expressed to you affection like that? Brother, being around you is a real joy. I have such strong bowels for you. Well, as I mentioned before, the seed of the soul in the ancient world was in the inmost parts. In Luke 15, Jesus, it is said, having risen, or excuse me, this is in Jesus' story of the prodigal son, the father having risen went unto his son. And he being yet far distant, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. The Greek literally says he was moved in his bowels. And having ran, he fell upon his neck and he kissed him. So I would ask you, brothers and sisters, do you feel strong affection? Are you moved in your core of who you are for the saints of Christ? Are you concerned for their sanctification, their growth, their maturity? Do you long to see them blessed and walking blamelessly before their God? It is not wrong for our bodies to respond with feeling. I hope you've not gotten the wrong idea as we've spoken against kind of the spirit of the age and that emotions lead everything, that in some sense, or maybe in any sense, feeling is an evil thing. It's not. Christians are not to be stoics, these bland-faced individuals that let all truth come upon them and it never affects who we are. It absolutely should. I mentioned that to know how to be sympathetic, you should get to know Christ. And Jesus responded this way many, many times in the scriptures. Matthew chapter 9, chapter 14, 15, 18, 20, Mark chapter 1, chapter 6, chapter 8, Luke 7 and Luke 10. I'll read the one from Matthew 9. It's verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. This is not a contradiction to what I said last week about Mr. Ruled by their emotions. Someone who does that is guided and led solely by their feelings, but to say that our feelings play no part in how God directs the affairs of our lives is unchristian. It is. God gave us our feelings. They're a beautiful and wonderful thing, used rightly and understood rightly. They're a beautiful part of our lives. Early on in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, 
Hobbit Frodo Baggins is wrestling with being compassionate, tender-hearted towards the loathsome creature Gollum. He confesses to his friend Gandalf the Wizard that his uncle Bilbo should have killed Gollum long ago, but he didn't. And do you remember why? Pity, which is the same as to say tender-heartedness or compassion. Gandalf said, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Pity and mercy not to strike without need. And Bilbo has been well rewarded, Frodo. Be sure that he took so little hurt from the evil and he escaped in the end with pity, with compassion. I've mentioned before, each time you pray the Lord's Prayer, you ask God to forgive your sins the same way that you forgive others. Have you thought about the Lord's Prayer that way? Father, I want you to forgive my sins the same way I forgive other people's sins. God, don't judge me according to your righteous standard. Judge me according to the standard that I use with others. Now that ought to make you tremble. Think about this for a minute. Not evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but compassion. Now, as I've talked about compassion, it may sound almost identical to sympathy. And honestly, the two are almost indistinguishable with one another. Peter is likely using a chiasm here with these five adjectives, an A, B, C, B, A pattern. So the A's match, the B's match, and C is kind of the high point of that chiasm. Like-mindedness and humility go together, as do sympathy and compassion, and brotherly love is the chief virtue of them all. Some of the men were talking about Tom Schreiner before the service started. He's a theologian and he said, Harmony and humility belong together for the primary means by which harmony is disrupted is pride and self-assertion. Sympathy and compassion are closely related and even hard to distinguish from one another. Brotherly love is the middle term showing that it is the most important of all the virtues and that the other virtues are embraced in the call to love one another as family. Well, let's turn lastly to the fifth and last adjective that Peter gives us here. Humble in mind, or your translation might say, humble in spirit. Give you a definition from Strong's Concordance. This is to have a humble opinion of oneself, a deep sense of one's moral littleness, modesty, humility, and lowliness of mind. Before we planted this church back in August, some of the men got together to celebrate and pray together. And I remember Daniel Haas asked a question during that meeting. He said, Chris, as we pray for this church and we pray for the blessing of God on this church, what could we pray for? And this adjective that Peter gives here was the one word that came into my mind. Humility. Humility. Ed Rosen says, a little humility goes a long way. He also says, you can have any kind of church government. You can have a high church, elder ruled, elder led, congregational, etc. And with the right kind of people, with a humble people, it will always work. 
no matter how close it is to the biblical standard, and there is a biblical standard of how we do church government, but if you've got the wrong kind of people, it never works. I told Tammy, I, at some point in my pastorate, I want to preach a sermon just on the Christian virtue of humility. Here's a, an excerpt from South African pastor Andrew Murray. He was a Dutch Reformed, and he describes humility this way. Humility is perpetual quietness of heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed or irritable. It is never to wonder at anything that is done to you. It is to feel nothing that is done against you. It is to be at rest when nobody praises you. And when you are blamed or despised, it is to have a blessed home in your inner man where you can go in, shut the door, kneel to your father who is in secret, and be at peace. As in a deep sea of calmness when all around you is seeming trouble. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, does humility typify who you are in Christ? If there is one thing that can split or kill a church faster than you can blink, that can turn pastors against sheep or sheep against pastors or wreck a home or break up families or create fights and hatred and bitterness, it is a lack of humility. In churches like ours, we put a high premium on what I said earlier, doctrinal precision and clarity, and I praise God for that. I will say, we have to admit this honestly, since we put such a high premium on the truth, we can expose our flesh to the temptation of pride. We've got it all figured out. Other churches aren't getting it. They're not doing the kind of ministry that we're doing because we've got the market on truth. You all know that striving for humility is work. I am very thankful for the doctrinal purity of this church. The unity that we see here, as I mentioned earlier, seems very special. Our people are like-minded and the fellowship is, as many of you have described, supernatural. But can I remind you of this church? None of that has anything to do with us having it all figured out. And it has everything to do with the grace of God in our lives. How much of your commitment to doctrinal purity will shield you from the wrath of God on judgment day. You ever thought about it that way? Let me ask it a different way. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? We've got to go to war against the idea that any good is inherent in us. You've got to protect your heart from the idea that you've got it all figured out. I'm going to pick on some people for just a minute. I know that a lot of y'all are excited about post-millennialism. I'm post-mill, Chris. All those ah-mills, those pre-mills, those silly dispies. Can't they see that the Bible speaks so plainly? You've got to be ignorant not to be post-millennial. Okay, Mr. Postmill. What does that phrase even mean? From which chapter of the Bible is it derived? Was Revelation written by John prior to 70 AD 
And what proofs would you give to say that it is? And why does that even matter? Does Revelation 20 run parallel to Revelation 17 through 19? Or does it follow chronologically? And why? If Christ will return after the millennium, why does Revelation 20 say that there will be a resurrection of bodies? The Greek word anastasis always means physical resurrection in the Bible. At the beginning of the millennium. Does 2 Thessalonians 1 speak of the second coming of Christ or the destruction of Jerusalem? And why does the answer to that question matter? Now, the reason I'm saying these things is not to convince you all that postmillennialism is wrong. I've mentioned to most of you that I am myself more and more convinced by the argument as I hear more of it. I want each of you to learn and grow and be fully convinced in your own minds on the, issue, uh, on the issue of eschatology or your view of the end times. My concern is not with your head, but with your heart. Does your learning turn into bragging and pride? Are you a flavor of the month Christian? Do you know more about what Doug Wilson says on Christian households than what the Apostle Paul says about Christian households? Are you a little giddy when the Bible reading plan goes off so that you can turn on your favorite podcast or a news program? Brothers and sisters, we're warned in the scriptures against being a people who like to have their ears tickled. These kind of things all feed pride. Lewis said that there is nothing worse than pride or self-conceit. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love or contentment or even common sense. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. Do you need to repent of your pride, beloved? Have you been harboring pride in your heart about any number of issues like Achan harbored gold bars and cloaks of Shinar in his tent after the victory of Jericho? I would just encourage you, some of you need to turn off your podcasts. Some of you need to turn off your Canon Plus app or Audible or whatever else it is that you listen to. If you turned it off for a week or two, would you be happy in the Lord? Would you love his word, treasure his word, store up his word in your heart and feel complete satisfaction? You really should consider how important these things are to you and if it's fostering a lack of humility in your heart. Take this to the bank, beloved. The greater Christ becomes in you, the less you will think of yourself. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. If whatever you're doing is causing you to increase in this world, in your mind and in your heart, Cut it out. Peter moves from verse 8, giving us five adjectives with a prohibition and a command in verse 9. First, briefly, I want to look at the prohibition. He says that Christians are not to return evil for evil or reviling, you might also think railing against somebody, for reviling. Is Peter talking about the evil that is done to you in the church or from the world? Possibly both. The scripture's not clear, we don't see. 
Is the world going to hate us? Yes, Jesus promised us that it would. Are our brothers and sisters going to wrong us, even misunderstanding us, justifying evil, and even at times railing at us? Yes. Sin does a number of things to us, beloved. It produces evil in you. It darkens your understanding. It weakens your body, makes your mind unfruitful and foolish and irrational. It hinders your sense of God's will. It makes God judge you unworthy of answered prayers as we've heard in recent weeks. It stunts your growth and produces and even leads to death. All of this is the antithesis of the Christ life in us. Jesus said that good trees don't produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. He said that trees are known by their fruit. So you here today, you want God to create a new world. You want Christ to reign over it in victory until the last enemy, death, is put underneath his feet. You want Christian industry and business and government. You want Anderson County for Jesus, for Clinton to outlaw the murdering of children forever, a law never to be revoked. You want women who are pregnant and the men who got them pregnant to consider abortion unthinkable. You want Clinton High School to be defunded because of the fruitful work of classical Christian education in this county to the point of a contrast so stark that even the law see that their government education is radically inadequate. Paul says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who teach and preach the love of Christ, is it found on your lips and in your home or in your interactions with others? You who seek forgiveness, do you mete out revenge? Paul concludes by saying, You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. How can we hold to a victorious vision of the future when we are unwilling to fight for victory in our own homes, in our own church, in our own community? To paraphrase Ed Rosen, in the moment, you feel like you might have a reason, but do you have a right? There are men in this church who this week have responded to wrong done to them by shouting back in sinful anger. And the scriptures say, shame on you. There are women here today in moments of tension, fear, frustration, and worrying about things in the world that they have no control over. They did sin against their husbands and their children. And yes, the scripture says that this too is shameful. Let me speak to the Christian children here today. How can you claim to love a God you have never seen and repeatedly this week you paid back your siblings evil for the wrong they did to you? Have you considered, young Christian, that you were invited to a table that proclaims oneness in Christ that is shared by all who call upon His name and that you are coming apart from the full unity with others in your Christian family? Are you feigning friendship and peace with those in your household and in this church? And you still harbor anger, resentment, bitterness, frustration, and so on. Brothers and sisters, these things and many more ought not be so. Paul says in Romans 12, Repay no one evil for evil. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. 
And Peter, in chapter 2, speaking of the Lord Jesus, says, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffered, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Beloved, perhaps you find in yourself, looking at these qualities, you see a vice list, not a virtue list. You see something that is screaming to you, your lack. Repent and look to Jesus. I was talking with one of my kids about this, this last Thursday night. Stayed up after bedtime, talking about questions about coming to know the Lord. How do I know the Lord? How do I believe in the Lord? And we got into the conversation about what a lot of people today say, even, in a, I'd say especially in reform circles, when it comes to knowing Christ, repenting of your sins, trusting Christ. People say things like, I'm trying to believe in Christ, but it's not working, which tend towards this, I've got to do something. It's a work. Or I'm repenting of my sins, but he's not saving me, which sounds like you're blaming God. Or how will I ever know that I'm in Christ? Equating salvation with assurance of salvation. Let me make it really simple. The people who come to Christ by faith and are saved from their sins are people who recognize their need. They're people who sense they've got a need. I've got a need, and he's the only one who can fix that problem. You remember the story in Numbers where the people of Israel were bit by the fiery serpents, that venom flowing through their veins, killing them off one by one. What happens? I got a need. I've got a need. Where do I go? Moses takes that serpent, puts it on the pole. Look at that. I'm looking right at it. And boom, they're healed. That's faith. That is saving faith. I've got a need. Look to Christ. I did. And he saves me every single time. Most of the time people are struggling with the salvation. They've never wrestled with the fact that they have a need. For us to walk through these lists and see our inadequacy, even in Christians, oh, it ought to do this. It ought to point you right to Jesus. I've got a need and every time he meets it. Every time I lack humility, there he is. The perfect example, pouring it out to me. He gives, he overflows for us in like-mindedness, in sympathy, in brotherly love, with a tender heart. He always shows us. The song we sing, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all of my sin. Beloved, look to Christ. I said at the beginning of the service, this is what this text should do for us. It should draw our minds to Christ. How do children in a home get conformed to the standards in that home? The majority of the time, it's through observation. And you know who they look at a lot? Older siblings. Every one of us should look at our older brother. That's who I want to be in this family. I want to be just like that. And that's the means that God uses to transform us into the person and work of Christ, to act like him, to live like him. Look to Christ, beloved. Look to Christ. And when you do, you won't respond with reviling or railing. You won't give back evil for evil. But instead, it'll produce in you blessing. 
The Greek eulogia can mean good speaking, praise, giving thanks, a blessing, a benefit bestowed, such as a monetary gift. It's used that way in the letter to the Corinthians. He says that this is our calling as Christians, to bless. Now, you remember, and this was in our catechism question this morning, there's a difference between the general call and the effectual call. Your effectual call comes with both a heavenly calling and an earthly one. I think Peter had to have these words in mind from the Lord Jesus when he wrote verse 9. He said in Luke chapter 6, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to the one who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's the Lord Jesus. That's the Lord Jesus. Just in the last week, Tammy and I had an opportunity to see a visual, physical representation of this in a movie that was just released by Voice of the Martyrs. It's a movie entitled Sabina Wormbrand. It's kind of the parallel story to Richard Wormbrand's Tortured for Christ, but it takes place in the earlier years of the Wormbrand's life. If you know anything about their story, Richard and Sabina were born Jewish, and they spent a good deal of their marriage after their conversion hiding Jews from the Nazi occupation in Romania. And after they hid Jews, and the Nazis were being pushed out of Romania, and the Russians were coming in, exterminating the Nazis, the Wormbrands hid the Nazis. And then, when the Nazis were gone, the Wormbrands started looking for ways to love the Russians. The striking thing to me about the movie was their commitment to this calling of bless those who persecute you. And I'll tell you, if you get a chance to watch this, you can go on Voice of the Martyrs and watch it. They'll take a donation of any amount. You can watch the movie. I would highly encourage you to watch it. The screenwriters did an excellent job of storytelling and they nailed this kind of love of Christ, this giving back good for evil. At one point in the movie, Richard wakes Sabina up in the middle of the night and tells her, that the Nazi soldier who is likely responsible personally for murdering her parents and her siblings is sitting in their living room. Do not repay evil for evil, but bless. I'm not going to give too much away, but her response will leave you thinking only the Spirit of God could do that. How would you treat someone who you know to be personally responsible for the death of your loved ones. And then can I ask you a closing question? How are you treating those closest to you now? Next week, when we return to the text, I want to look at inheriting a blessing. And we'll kind of tag that on to verses 10 through 12 from Psalm 34. But I'll leave you with this this week, brothers and sisters. If you lean on the flesh and on your own understanding you are always going to pump out more evil and cursing. Look at this. We all have one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Apart from Him, we can't do anything. But with Him, we can do 
all things. Do you know how you can be of like-mindedness with others here and yet have differences and maintain humility? You've got to be close to the Savior. That's it. How can you know how to be sympathetic with those who are struggling, offering them love and truth all at the same time in order to be compassionate and tender-hearted? How much do you treasure and worship God for the love that Christ has for you? We need to study, see, and savor the Lord Jesus Christ. How are you supposed to love your brothers the way that you ought? This text, beloved, is not your newest list for works righteousness. It is not. These are God's household rules for sure. And how do the little children learn the function of a home? By observation. Particularly observing those older siblings. So let's look together to our elder brother Christ to be filled with the Holy Spirit, live triumphantly in our homes and here in this fellowship, and let's show the world how great a value this Christ of ours is. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for how your word challenges us. We thank you for the fact that as you prune with the grace and mercy that is a, a part of your very character, you heal us, you mend us. Though we as living sacrifices are presented to you and your word lays us open and bare, you bind us up. And this all because of the work of Christ. Oh, Father, please, please help these, your sheep, this week to see Christ, to savor Him, to abide in Him, and see by the power of your Holy Spirit these good qualities and virtues being manifested in their lives without them even thinking about it. Oh, do a work in us that we might be more like our elder brother, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen.